Welcome back to the Bulwark Coast of Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. I am very excited to be joined by my good friends, Alyssa Rosenberg, who is very tired and also uh, a Washington Post opinion columnist, and Peter the Man Suderman. He said he wrote this in GChat, just so you know. He's Peter mm-hmm. the Man Suderman, uh, Reason Magazine features editor. Who is uh, also I, very tired. I, I am. I also very tired. I am very excited to be joined by my friends. Some of you uh, w- w- will have been listeners to Across the Movie Aisle, which you know uh, the Once in Future podcast. Uh, hopefully that 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 you knew and loved. Um, and uh, I, I I wanted to have them on today so we could talk about a the state of things post the election, uh, but b also just kind of how everything in the movie industry looks right now and what. Uh, we can kind of expect from coverage of the movie industry going forward. Um, uh, so thanks for joining me on the show thanks today, guys. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Uh, so one thing that came up this week and I found deeply distressing as both a fan of the movies and a fan of Christopher Nolan uh, was it was Christopher Nolan in an interview with the Los Angeles Times tied to a, a new book uh, of, of criticism about his movies. Um, he suggested that... Hollywood is taking the wrong lessons from the uh, box office results of Tenet, which as as longtime listeners of this show know, we're not great uh, domestically. I think it's at 55 million or something like that right now domestically. I um, probably won't do much more than that, uh, uh, but did better overseas. Uh, it's around 350 million total worldwide gross. Um, his, his argument is that we should be looking at the success of the film in foreign markets like China. Uh, and and some other places instead of focusing on the failure of the domestic uh, box office. And I find this a little bit troubling for a couple of reasons. One is that, A, we, we should not abandon the domestic box office. The domestic box office is very important. But also, B, it's important because if we focus on the sorts of movies that play very, very well overseas, what you're looking at is an endless uh, stream of Fast and Furious um, Marvel MCU uh, uh, type movies, right? Transformers You're looking films? at the big Michael Bay's uh, trans- Michael Transformers Bay's films, contributions to society, the 11 million Avatar movies that are coming down the pike in our direction. Right. So if 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 you if you focus more on the foreign box office out of the Hollywood product, right? The Hollywood product is going to be the sort of things that critics in general do not really care for. Now maybe maybe we're bad people and we deserve what we get. Um and we'll come to that later. But the but the but what I but I I do think that this is actually like a kind of a it, it's a worrying signal to me if even Christopher Nolan is like let's focus on on the big budget stuff that does well in China, because that's not a future of movies that I'm super excited about. Yeah, I think that um, if there is one kind of bipartisan concern in the culture wars right now, it's um, the sort of tilting of influence on Hollywood towards not even specifically what Chinese audiences want, but what Chinese censors are willing to let them watch from abroad. Um, And I think there are a couple of things going on here. I mean, I think Nolan was really desperate to save the American box office. There was a reason that he was pushing for um, Tenet to open on big screens instead of going to video on demand. Um, and, you know, for good reason, they had 
sunk a lot of money into promoting the movie and you know the math was just not going to be good if they uh, went to video on demand as we saw with the sort of talk about whether uh, a James Bond the new James Bond movie would go in that direction um so there is the fact that Nolan I think failed in his efforts to convince Americans on math that it was safe to go back to the movies um, there is the increasing attention to the Chinese box office, which is something that's been going on for a while now and is accelerating in part because their COVID-19 outbreak um, is more under control than ours and their movie theaters are open. And so it is a market that exists and is viable. Um, and just the sort of blockbusterization of Hollywood cinema, which has been going on. <laughs> Uh, that's not a new phenomenon. And so it's hard to disentangle these things. But I think that, you know, at rock bottom, um, you have to convince people that it's safe to go back to movie theaters. Um, that is not happening in the United States. And until that happens, sort of appealing to patriotism and American values is not going to do that much against the power of an open movie market anywhere. Um, so I think... <laughs> You know, these things are all tangled up in each other. I don't know how to separate them. I don't know how to sort of get beyond them. Um, but it's it's not great. Peter? I mean, if you only focus on movies that are going to play internationally, which mostly means China, because China is by far the biggest international market, uh, then it's not just going to change movies in the way that Alyssa is talking about, though it certainly will, it's not just going to mean that movies will end up being designed for Chinese censors and Chinese viewer tastes. It's also going to change the types of movies that can be financed. Um, because if you if you assume tenant-like grosses uh, for a, a year or two or a couple of years here for most big Hollywood productions, then you're basically writing off the U.S. box office completely, which granted, it doesn't really exist right now. But even, I mean, you know, so uh, go back and look at um, at Christopher Nolan's last couple of films uh, and what they what kind of business they did in the United States. Uh, Interstellar and Dunkirk both made about $188 million domestically. Uh, Inception made closer to $300 million domestically. That's a huge amount of money that studios would just be would be saying, well, we're, we're going to assume that we won't be bringing in that amount of revenue. And maybe we'll we'll be able to increase the foreign box office a little bit, although in this environment, I actually think that you're still probably looking at somewhat depressed foreign box office uh, relative to what you would have pre COVID. And yeah. that's just that's going to mean that the, literally the only things that they can produce are really safe sequels. Yeah. that are going to play very broadly and be completely uninteresting because the only things that are going to be able to justify the 150 million plus uh you know production budgets that we see now for big hollywood movies um and the only thing that's going to be able to justify that sort of international only mm -hmm. global release that that we're talking about here are just super super safe uh, franchise films done on large but not quite gigantic budgets. And that's, that's in some ways, that's the world we were, you know, heading towards anyway. Um, but this would radically accelerate it. On the other hand, you know, um, well, we can talk about this somewhat later. Uh, the streaming world right now is uh, imperfect and frustrating, but also kind of interesting in that it is supporting a bunch of movies and uh, the types of movies that might not exist in a you know um 
in a or that don't exist you know theatrically uh at all right now and that are you know kind of smaller budget more interesting films you can th look at things like the new sofia coppola film um you know uh just uh there's a, there's a bunch of kind of smaller yeah, that, films that I are mean... getting financed uh and uh, picked up through the streaming services uh the the aaron sorkin chicago trial of the chicago seven that sort of thing uh, which was scheduled sure for, but for release and you know maybe maybe the world that we are heading towards is studios produce very bland blockbusters for the international market um americans can enjoy them if they want and then americans get you know interesting weirder stuff on the streaming services that right now are in a uh a an experimental phase that is actually producing a lot of uh, a lot of weirdly notable material i think it's Oh, I was just yeah. going to say it's worth noting what Peter, what you said about a cash crunch. I mean, the studios just have less money coming in. The theaters are desperately raising money um, through, you know, uh, they're trying like taking on debt, trying to stay afloat. But there's literally just going to be less money sloshing around to make movies. I mean, there's yeah, there are questions means, about how long marginal products are the like the interesting products, the the risky ones are the ones yeah. that get slashed first. Yeah, and I mean. There are the logistical challenges of producing every, anything, though it definitely seems like European shoots are continuing even with the big second wave there, but there's literally just less cash. I mean, Netflix just raised subscription prices some, but it's not clear how long they're going to be able to keep spending the way that they've been spending. Um, and so, yeah, there's just there's literally less money available to make movies. Yeah, I mean, I this is this is part of the problem with uh, counting on the the the. Uh, streamers picking up the weirder stuff, the smaller stuff idea, right? Because On the Rocks was made for theatrical release. On On the Rocks was not a movie that was made As for was, uh, trial of uh, the streamers. Seven, that's true. Tri trial of the Chicago Seven. I was it. I, it I'm was pretty sure that was a no, Netflix it was original uh, for it was Paramount, theatrical it? release, and then, and then Netflix was it? picked okay. it up sometime over the okay. summer and just and put it out um, uh, on their service exclusively. Sure. And then you get Amazon picking up the new Borat movie, which was supposed to go in theaters, obviously did not. Um, but I, but my, my point is that that a lot of this stuff is made was made with the intention of going to theaters. Uh, I don't know that a lot of it can be made without that promise of domestic box office revenue. Um, and as Alyssa notes, hey, look, you, you Netflix is essentially still just burning cash. Netflix is still just ripping through debt and accumulating debt and and lighting Joker uh, pyramid of cash uh, size amounts of money on fire every month or so. I mean, I like it is it is spending an incredible amount of money and uh, is not that is not sustainable, um, frankly, that just it's just not sustainable. Um, but that that brings us to Netflix, which which, you know, I, I there there have been an interesting series of stories suggesting that uh, Netflix is engaging in a bit of buyer's remorse over their mega deals with producers like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes. Um, and I'm kind of curious what you guys make of this. I it's it's interesting to me because I I don't really watch a lot of Netflix's TV stuff. I find it. I don't I, I don't have time for it, first of all. And I, I the the time crunch that comes with trying to watch a whole season in a week so I can talk about it with everybody is just really draining. I like I just don't I don't have time for it. Um, it, which which leads me to focus on their movies and their movies seem to be getting trounced by other things in the marketplace right now. I mean, there was a there was an interesting little 
poll uh, of of data that that came from, I, frankly, a source that I don't entirely trust, but um, uh, Variety published it, so I'll give it a little bit of credence. Uh, but the but Variety suggests that look, you know, the top three movies that have been released uh, in SVOD on in 2020 are Hamilton. Borat 2 and My Spy. Those are three movies that have nothing at, that were not on Netflix at all. Two were Prime Video. One was Disney+. Plus. Um, and if you look at the top 10, number number four is Extraction. So the, Netflix's biggest movie hit so far this year, according to this uh, this this data, is is Extraction. Uh, number five is another Disney Plus movie. It's Phineas and Ferb, the movie. Number six is Mulan, and Mulan, frankly, got uh, got downgraded a bit because people had to pay extra money to watch it. But it's still, according to this this data, the sixth most streamed uh, movie of the year. Then you have two more Netflix movies: The Old Guard Trial of Chicago Seven, and then number nine is Roald Dahl's The Witches. Uh, number ten was the lovebirds. So you look at this list and you have Netflix, which is the, the biggest streamer, uh, in the world, the biggest has the most subscribers by far. Uh, it is, it is in many, many households, many, many more households than Disney plus many, many more households than prime video, um, or HBO max or Hulu. And what do we see? We see Netflix still can't dominate this list. And if they can't dominate it right now, I don't see how they're supposed to be able to dominate it and raise the sort of money that they need to keep burning this this giant pyramid of cash every couple months um, uh, going forward. Am I wrong? What, so, am, I, what am I missing Not to here? go completely Marshall McLuhan on you, but I think there's just a medium question here, which is that uh, a, a world of filmed entertainment that is dominated by at-home streaming services is probably going to be a world in which serialized, episodic, long-form storytelling dominates rather than self-contained two-hour or so features. Um, In the same way that short stories, which used to be just like a dominant form of storytelling in America, kind of gave way uh, to television, movies, that sort of thing uh, in the post-war era... Um, and now we're just sort of like a, a hobbyist thing. Yes, people still write short stories, but there's no giant market for them. Nobody's getting rich off of them. Um, I mean, every once in a while, you get somebody who writes a one that pops and uh, you get a book deal out of it. But even still, it's a pretty niche product. The cat right, people. Uh, yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Um, but it's still a relatively niche product and a world in which in which we get most of our filmed entertainment through streaming services that that aren't there to bring you to a specific product, but instead are there to bring you to a a platform that offers a suite of products and just wants you to pay a monthly subscription fee for access. What they want is just to sort of have stuff that you're generally interested in watching in or vaguely interested in watching at any point. And that's going to be the television, right? And and episodic television. Uh, The other thing is though, you know, anyway, and just to, to, to sort of, um, one more point on that is that that is the HBO model. That's the FX model. I mean, HBO does produce some good features every now and then. But what is HBO known for? They're a cable network. They're known for their television shows, FX as well. Um, and so they do, even when they're doing, uh, even when they're doing miniseries, it's still, here's four, five, six episodes. It's not, let's do a single self-contained feature that can be watched in a single viewing. And I think that streaming, the streaming format just supports long form episodic kind of sprawly story- storytelling much better than 
Uh, it supports feature filmmaking and the theatrical yep. experience, of course, doesn't support serialized filmmaking, serialized storytelling nearly as well, even though Marvel has kind of experimented with that. Huh. The other thing, yeah. though, is and we've talked th about this before, is Netflix has a lot of money and actually a quite a bit of of real top tier talent. What they do not appear to have is a development process for taking quite yes. talented filmmakers and making sure that their interesting ideas turn out to really exceptionally good products. Well, and I think that one, oh, sorry, Senna, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, Alyssa, I, before we get to that, before we get to that, and I, I do think that is very key and I want to talk about that, but what one thing I am curious about here, Alyssa, is, is the Netflix model for releasing TV shows sustainable, right? So their big innovation was, we're putting out 10 hours of a show on one day, and you, you you binge it for the weekend, and then in three weeks, we'll put out another thing that you have to watch 10 hours. Now, I, I, obviously, this has worked for them. Uh, they Netflix continues to dominate uh, the Nielsen ratings of TV shows, right, uh, on streaming. They, they continue to be eight or nine of the top 10, generally, um, options there. But what I what 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 I think we have seen with uh, both the boys and the Mandalorian, which is now in its second season, is that a weekly release strategy keeps you in the conversation longer and it makes you have to spend less money. I mean, this is the thing, right? HBO, uh, the HBO model, Peter, right, is based on uh, HBO making five or six great shows that essentially run one night a week for uh for you know 10 weeks and then that covers Although their even whole hbo year. is expanding it, the number of productions that they're doing and putting some of it directly on yes. hbo max right 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 but i i mean so Alyssa, do you think i i this is this is where i think the big change is coming that nobody is really talking about is that i i question whether or not the netflix model is sustainable not in terms of how much money they are spending though it is tied to this but just in terms of their release yeah. strategy because if you if you if you if you do this, if you keep doing this, you're going to keep burning yeah. through cash. It just it's just well, not sustainable. And also, I mean, this has become something of a hobby horse of mine. But I think that what is sacrificed in Netflix is sort of give you everything exactly when you want it. Model is a central a sense of cultural connection, and I think Netflix has hugely fed into the atomization of the conversation around television shows. And look, I mean, I loved watching Game of Thrones for eight years. But you know what I really loved for eight years was talking to other people about Game of Thrones and being able to have a sustained, detailed, evolving conversation about each episode as it came out. The Netflix model makes that completely impossible. Um, and you see things like Netflix Party that let people um, you know, watch episodes together synced up in real time. But it is just no replacement for a large-scale cultural conversation around a smaller number of things. Um, that, you know, that's fun. The social element is part of it. Um, that structure is, you know, good for the television shows themselves because they have time to sort of roll out in longer seasons. You can course correct, you know, if you're on a network television show, if something's not quite working. But also people just have the time to watch the stuff and discuss it. And, I, I mean, I don't like watching Netflix shows very much because I never feel like I have anyone to discuss them with. I, they're hard to write about from a cultural perspective because you don't know what counts as a spoiler for people at any given time. You have no idea when people want the discussions of various big plot twists. I mean, it's just, it's culturally atomizing. It's lonely. It's a less fun way to watch TV irrespective of how good the TV is or isn't. Um, 
Yeah, but in terms of Netflix's development process, you know, the big promise when Netflix started signing deals with people like Ryan Murphy, who has produced, I think, the most content on his deal of any of the people they um, locked down with a mega contract was sort of total artistic freedom that you were going to get the totally unfiltered Ryan Murphy or Kenyon Barris or Shonda Rhimes. And it turns out, again, we have the most content from Murphy to judge. I think the extent to which most people like the totally unfiltered Ryan Murphy is like kind of questionable. Um, you've had him pursuing a bunch of sort of weird passion projects um, that are often kind of sour, very much informed by his sort of private obsessions and are not striking big in the way that something like Glee, which was like relatively family friendly or even American Horror Story has. Um and, you know, Netflix has money, but it does not appear to have a consistent sense of taste. Um, I don't know if either of you um, listen to Karina Longworth's podcast. You must, re- you must remember this, but she just finished up a season about Polly Platt, who was um, sort of first a production designer and then an executive producer working with her then husband, Peter Bogdanovich, then James L. Brooks. She was someone who incubated Wes Anderson, helped make The Simpsons happen, and you know, she, her career, even if, you know, she wasn't as famous or as sort of recognized as she possibly deserved to be during her life, is a testament to the power of good, consistent taste. And that is idiosyncratic. You cannot, you can measure popularity with an algorithm, but you cannot reverse engineer it. You cannot reverse engineer taste from data. Um, And, you know, one of the things you see, HBO, was very good because you had a sort of strong sense of taste and development process. FX is successful and probably the most successful of the basic cablers because John Landgraf, who's the head of that network, is both very smart about data and trend spotting, but he has good taste and a good, you know, sort of range of taste from pulpier stuff like the Kurt Sutter shows um, to the sort of more refined stuff like Mrs. America and Fosse Verdun. And it's not just that he has good taste. It's that he clearly has a good sense of how to work with creators to help. Including difficult ones. Yeah. And and creators like working with him because they know that he's not there to tell them to go stuff themselves and your ideas are stupid. What he's there to do is say, this is a good idea. Let's make it better and more accessible. Not to subtweet one of the big stories in the political and media and world, but it turns out editing is good. Um, I mean, I think this is actually something that all of us share. We've talked about this before, is that all of us, in addition to to writing, have done work uh, as editors and even very good writers who are just exceptionally, exceptionally talented people uh, frequently, in most cases, benefit from having somebody else there to kind of bounce their ideas off of, to workshop things, to sharpen their ideas. And writing is writing is, you know, very much a kind of solo uh, activity. Um, in, in a lot of ways, but having that extra person there whose job is not to to produce it, but to think about what should be done and sort of how to maintain a consistent sense of quality and a sensibility um, is a valuable thing in journalism, in uh, in television, in all kinds of storytelling and creative ende- endeavors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do think that there there is a scale problem here as well, right? Which kind of gets back to our point about budgets and how big they should be and and what will get made like a, a movie like the wolf of snow hollow which i liked a lot um is and is very much 
a product of an individual creator's like, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this movie and it's going to be, you know, a million bucks and it's going to be uh, huge by my standards, but still very small by everybody else's standards um, is doable. I think you can, I think you can get away with that. I, I, I think when you, when you have a guy like Ryan Murphy pouring tens and tens of millions of dollars into these just deeply weird um, uh, and, and as Alyssa says, just kind of sour projects, uh, you, 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 you have, you run into a very, very real, uh, problem or say if you give Christopher Nolan $200 million and you say you can do anything you want with time, you end up with a movie like Tenet where the, the, the last, I don't know, half hour or so is, is almost incomprehensible. Um, which, uh, you know, again, there are pluses and minuses. There are pluses and minuses. Uh, and I, I like to see big swings even when they miss. Um, but but we we are uh, we are talking about pluses and minuses. Alyssa, what do you what do you make of the new Shonda Rhimes project? I mean, I you you said that you had you had mentioned it in a yeah, chat. So with us. I um, uh, this is a slightly embarrassing story I'm going to tell about myself. But um, I have really Ooh. terrible nightmares. I always have since I'm a child. I have a hard time waking up from them. And when I was in college, uh, my sophomore year roommate, Denise Levitan, go Denise. Um, got so sick of these nightmares that she started just handing me romance novels whenever I had one. So I could have something to like distract my brain and go back to sleep. And the ones that she kept handing me were um, this series by the author, Julia Quinn, who writes about an extended family in Regency England through the Bridgerton romances and rhymes is adapting them. Um, and so the minute those things showed up in my Netflix queue, you better believe that I distracted myself from the election season by watching them. Um, the two of you would hate this. I mean, it's a straight up romance novel show. It's like, you know, Dude. super corny, a um, lot of boning in the later episodes. Um, it's like, it's, Ew. I mean, it's basically, it's, basi parts. it's basically mommy porn. Um, I enjoyed the heck out of it, but I, I will, I would put down 20 bucks that it ends up being one of the most controversial shows of the year in part because it is going to land in the middle of the Hollywood diversity debate in some really strange ways. Um, and so I like it, of these shows that have come out of these sort of creator mega deals. And I should note, this is not actually show run by Shonda Rhimes herself. It's under her production banner, but it's not a show that she is like writing and directing. Um, someone else is doing that. And so it is in many ways a really good encapsulation of her vision. It's like tweaked from the novels in certain ways that kind of amp up the tension for Netflix's purpose. But it's a pretty faithful encapsulation of both these novels, which are quite popular and of Rhyme's aesthetic. But because she has done certain things around race in the show, um, I think it is going to land in a way that is jarring to some viewers. And so paradoxically, even though it's like exactly the thing that Netflix hired Shonda Rhimes to do, I think I would just keep an eye on this one um, because I think the debates around it are going to be really interesting in as much as it's even possible to have a debate about anything on Netflix. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I am, uh, I, this is, this is the real question for me is right. Like, it, can it be the most controversial show of the year if nobody's really watching and talking about it? I mean, I like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, it, I, I have no good sense of how many people are actually watching this thing or, or how, how big a hit it is or isn't. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I, it is, it is as with everything else like somewhere now, though, lost. without uh, a, uh, without a, 
a box office to speak of. Um, and without even really dominant kind of television shows in the mold of Game of Thrones, yes, people have been watching Lovecraft Country. Um, you know, there have been a few shows that have gotten more attention, uh, relatively speaking. But there's not, uh, there are no single products that appear to be dominating kind of cultural conversation. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of critic uh, arguments that were common even a year ago. Instead, it's just sort of people casting about, watching whatever it is they happen to be watching, writing about stuff, and it's sort of echoing out into the into the valley, and you're not quite sure if anybody's listening. And it's just a really weird moment right now in which it's very hard to tell what anybody's watching on any network yeah. at all, right? It's yeah. It's not no, and I mean, Netflix is, is part of the problem and maybe sort of uh, the origin of the problem, but it's but, yeah. not the end of it. Well, and, and this go part ahead, of what go was ahead, interesting Alyssa. about the variety list you sent us, Sunny, and that we were talking about earlier in the podcast is that it ranks, you know, what movies are theoretically most popular on the streaming services. But we have no idea what popular means, right? I mean, yeah. you know, um, Apple TV has Apple TV Plus has never released its subscriber numbers. We have no idea how many people are actually paying for that service or just surfing on free subscriptions. Um, you know, we know that Disney Plus has a pretty strong subscriber base, stronger than they had initially forecast. But we don't know how many people rented Mulan on its premium video on demand because they wouldn't release the numbers. Um, I mean... All the metrics are nonsense. And to a certain extent, it's a good thing for pop culture to be freed from the tyranny, uh, like this sort of overwhelming tyranny of like what constitutes a hit. It's been, you know, a lot of shows have stayed alive on network television because the ratings thresholds for what counts as a successful show have gotten lower over time. Um, but it's kind of weird not to know what's popular at all. Um, I feel just yeah. totally adrift about it. It's very strange. And and this this brings me to kind of my the final thing I wanted to discuss, which is that what what is most popular, the thing that is most popular and has been for several years now is the Donald Trump show. Right. The 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 thing this this is this is absolutely consumed the culture in very real ways that the all focus is kind of poured into oh what crazy thing is donald trump doing now oh what what slide towards authoritarian fascism are we enduring at this point and and uh this has this has i think i think this has affected uh cultural writing in deeply negative ways i think there is an obsession with trump that that kind of comes through and is bad for the discussion of movies like it, it just it's it's not a it's not a uh, I, I don't want to suggest that I'm, you know, saying uh, critics should shut up and write about the movies, right? It's not a shut up and play ball situation, but it, but it is, it is, it is a function, I think, of what we are discussing here, right? Which is that there is no common cultural thing, there is no big show, there is no big movie, um, and this problem has been exacerbated horribly in the last ten months or so as the coronavirus epidemic has raged and the theaters have shut down and we're we're all kind of stuck at home and just watching news and TV right um and and as a result everybody focuses on on the presidency to the point where and this I just I find this really funny I don't know if you guys do but I found it really funny that rogerebert.com uh, for the first time in their history they made a big deal of this the first time in their history they're endorsing a president and I for one was shocked I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be a real close thing, but the the film critics 
they are they wanted Donald Trump out of office. They wanted Joe Biden to win. I was I was blown away by this. But like I, but it but it, it it like I I just I can't help but feel like the I would say that like 80% of the reason why I want Trump gone is so we can get back to just talking about uh cultural stuff and not have it be totally inflected by him and his nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> No. Right. I mean, this is a thing we have. This is a thing we have discussed privately, and I don't want to get too much into our private discussions. But I do feel like that there is a there is a there is a uh, he has had a deleterious effect on the mental well-being of many of our colleagues, including <laughs> us, frankly. I, I don't I wouldn't I wouldn't exclude us from that. Um, and, and 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 I think him being gone will be good for the for the state of the cultural conversation just in general, just the actual discussion. There of was a tweet yeah. that went around, um, I think, on uh, on Tuesday, on Election Day, about a voter in Florida, I believe, um, who uh, had come in to the 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 polls intending to vote for Donald Trump and then changed his I believe his it might have been a woman um, changed this voter changed their mind at the polls because uh, and the reason they gave to the reporter who they were talking to was you know uh, I just want things to go back to normal I'm tired of my Instagram feed being all politics I want it to be selfies right and it was yeah. and it was like I mean, I, I, in a certain way but it also completely reasonable that someone didn't want all of the cultural conversation and like all all public yeah. discussion of of like what it means to be an american or a person alive in 2020 to be dominated by one idiot politician with bad hair in the white house yeah no and i so i come to this conversation as someone who when I started working professionally as a critic about 10 years ago, um, was kind of a lonely voice in looking at the politics of culture. Um, my first time at the Television Critics Association press tour, I asked some questions to executives about diversity and what they were greenlighting and got made fun of on Twitter <laughs> by other critics. And now those questions are totally mainstream. And so this is all your fault, is what 100%. you're saying. I mean, everything. The, the, the diversity every, obsession. Everything is Alyssa all Rosenberg's my fault. fault. Um, okay. And I, I would say, you know, 10 years in, I believe and have always believed that culture does political work. And this is not, you know, this is not a lone or weird lefty opinion. It's, you know, it was an animating idea for Andrew Breitbart, a major conservative media entrepreneur. Um, but I think where I differ from some of my colleagues is that, I believe that the political work that art has to do is distinct from the work that is performed by political parties or by elected officials. And I think mm -hmm. the role that art plays most effectively and you know does most importantly in our democracy is to speak aloud ideas that are verboten or unspeakable or don't have a particular place in our political system and to imagine things that are not seen as comprehensible or feasible in the contours of, of our political system. Um, one of the reasons that I love Zero Dark Thirty, um, which I think is an absolute masterpiece of a movie, is that is that it, it objectively glorifies torture. It, it yes. Speaking of people who need uh, editors, it, hopefully Glenn. Hopefully Glenn's uh, listening. Is that it is a movie that takes this moment of American catharsis and makes it exhausting, turns it upside down, um, focuses on the sort of drain and the anti-climax of the experience. And that is not something that 
was sayable, that had room in the discourse at the time Osama bin Laden was killed, but it is really useful for someone to have said it. And I think that we are culturally and politically having a hard time discussing that kind of distinct role for the arts in expanding our conversations. And I think that's really unfortunate. Um, I, you know, I like art that is politically uncompliant and unruly and that makes me feel weird and question my priors in multiple directions. And I hope that if Trump is defeated, as we are taping this podcast, um, we're like probably a couple hours away from having results in Georgia, um, that maybe that conversation, that distinct role can be more elevated in the conversation, because I think that would be politically and artistically healthy. I think I think I think what you're getting at here is a a difference, a, a difference that has become, I think, almost unbearable in the in the in the last few years, which is it, it, it is not it is art is not being judged by the ideas so much as how it plays on a partisan level, right? Like it's it's one thing it's it's one thing for the arts to be largely liberal and progressive, right? And it's another thing for them to be team Democrat all the time. And that I think is that is I think a thing that has changed uh, in, in the Trump era, or at least has become more vocalized in the Trump era, right? Like this is, this is why I was kind of joking about the Roger Ebert endorsement, right? The, like, I don't think anybody is surprised that the site would endorse a Democrat. I don't think there was any question there, but, and, and that's not a good or bad thing. It's just like, okay, obviously it's like, we know, we know, we know. Um, I don't know. I, I like I just I again, I'm I will be happy when Roger goes back to not feeling that they have like some sort of moral need to weigh in uh, and say, OK, well, this is the I think person you should there's elect. this mistaken sense amongst both critics and to some extent creators and the producers who, you know, sort of edit and purchase their work right now um, that any art that isn't affirmatively doing the work of being anti-Trump is is insufficient in some way. And it needs to be yes. clearly and unambiguously stating political priors. And, you know, it's not quite yes. the inciting partisan again, partisan yeah. priors, like not 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 clearly and firmly stating like we believe in equality or we believe in it's like you we believe in electing Democratic officials it, to office and getting to, rid of the bum in the art, White House. And it leads to criticism that is that's boring predictable and i think worst of all um like simple right like the interesting thing about like movies and stories and art that's interesting it it it's timeless and it's interesting because it's complex because it resists easy interpretation because it there you know sort of you, you look at i mean virtually all of my favorite movies like you can say some cl- things that they kind of clearly say about the world but there's also something prismatic about them right different people come to them and see different things. And every time you watch them, you see it in a different light and it reflects differently off of the, the time you're living in. If you watch it in 2005 versus in 2015 or 2020 and, and criticism and art that like doesn't want to engage on that level, I think is just not very useful and not very interesting. And is like, it's, that's not the point of what I, that's not what I want art to be about. That's not what I want criticism to be about. And I would say that, you know, it's not quite, it's not quite the origin story here. It's not quite the inciting incident, but it was really 
notable back in, I think it was 2017, when Michiko Kukutani, who was the most powerful book critic in the world for like 20 years. I mean, she was just, it was her and Oprah, right? And just, and in terms of, of actual critics whose job was to read books and write about them perceptively, uh, no one was more powerful. James Wood might have been maybe more respected in the, you know, critical world. Um, and she ended up leaving the Times and taking a buyout uh, in part because she wanted to write a political column and they wouldn't let her. And oh my goodness, she had a job reading yeah. novels and describing them uh, uh, to to millions of and readers. Making or and breaking them. Pretty well for Making it. or like, breaking that's them. That's crazy that you would like, then decide that what you really want to yeah. do is write about the filibuster. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, your your uh, wife, Peter, Megan McArdle, had a very incisive tweet, I thought, uh, a week or two back, uh, which and this is a political columnist. I love it. There is nothing wrong with being a political columnist. All three There's of us no, right, have right, worked no, nothing, as political opinion journalists uh, continue to absolutely. In some ways. Um, but it seems it just sort of seems crazy to me that you would want to step off of the, you know, yeah out of the, the world of, of, of books and art and, and that sort of idea and into a, just a sort of rough and tumble day-to-day -day political argument. But also boring. But I mean, this is what, so this is what Megan tweeted, right? Uh, the strangest development of the last five years or so is that all of the movie and arts and food writers seem to want to do is talk politics, while all the politics people I know just want to talk about music and television and food. And I think there, there's something very true there, right? There's this idea that like, uh, that the political people need needs need a release um, from the grind of like d doing nothing but politics all the time, and the the arts writers feel that what they are doing is not important enough, so they need to really like get into the nitty gritty of the the political. And this is I the 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 what you just described uh, the New York Times book critic leaving it blew my mind. It just it just absolutely blew my mind. I was like I can't imagine as you say peter wanting to like go write about the filibuster instead of like making or breaking the entire the entire uh, world of of novels and fiction well and i think that i i make sort of two adjacent points um the first is that look the donald trump's election was politically galvanizing for a lot of people including um a lot of liberal critics um and I think it was galvanizing for a lot of people who were liberal but not radicalized in some way. Critics are probably overrepresented in that category. So it makes sense that those effects would be felt particularly strongly in those spaces. And in some cases, I do think that those reckonings are long term going to make for healthier criticism. For example, you know, and I have written about this extensively, um, you know, cop shows have been one of the most dominant and sort of under-interrogated um, tropes in American popular culture. And they have been sort of consumed in some fairly predictable ways. Um, there have been, they're just sort of an accepted feature of the landscape. And seeing long-term critics like Alan Seppenwall, who, you know, to a certain extent, like kind of made his bones writing about cop shows kind of interrogate that and see people thinking about a part of the landscape that they just took for granted get shook up i think that's going to make more interesting cop shows more interesting writing about cop shows and i'm excited to see where that comes uh comes down i think that's i think that's a healthy thing and i think that may end up being artistically and critically productive um and then there was something else I was going to say, and my brain is so fried by the election. <laughs> I mean, I think there's actually, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I take your point, and I think you can make a hopeful case 
that no. if Trump is out of the picture, as seems oh. likely, uh, that critics will end up being politically informed without being a partisan, uh, you know, obsessed with partisanship in a way that they maybe have been for the last couple of years. And the other thing I would say is, you know, we've sort of joked about the Trump show um, being the kind of dominant, like that's the most popular show. And part of why it's a bummer to see critics move into sort of writing about politics in sort of horse racy or moralistic terms is that the tools of criticism are actually really useful to understanding and explaining what's going on to people right now. And bringing something distinct, bringing the ability to, you know, analyze a monologue or the stagecraft of debate or, you know, the contradiction between or, you know, the what people get out of Trump rallies, like bringing the tools of criticism to that in sort of an explanatory investigative way is really useful to explaining what's going on right now. And critics should not give up those sort of distinct tools to explain the world that we live in. In, um, in college, I, uh, uh, I, my English major was, my emphasis was in theater as text, so not theater as performance, but just as yeah. text. And so, of course, we read a bunch of like mid-century commie playwrights, um, you know, and, and there's this whole like Bertolt Brecht shtick about how, about how theater uh, should sort of ideally take the form of two lawyers arguing on stage and at the end the audience should move to action it's literally theater should be you know kind of a, it should be political a, a sort of political statement that is designed to move the audience uh into a sort of a, not just a belief but a but a belief that is followed by changing what they do and you can argue of, with yeah. that as like a theory or whatever but it's actually a super useful way of thinking about how politics works and sort of bring being able to bring some of those those uh, tools of dramatic analysis that I learned um, in a mostly apolitical setting uh, in college um, to to political writing I, has always been pretty useful and like you know and and I do think that you know to be clear like we've kind of uh, crapped on critics and their political activism here but there is a place for for moving back and forth and for kind of blending those two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that when you're a critic and all you want to do is sort of is, is, uh, is simplify things and yeah. reduce everything to, is this affirmatively for the kind of pull you know, the, a, a very like narrow political change that I favor this year, then yeah. it just becomes so boring. Well, and and so, yeah. And I, I want to I want to to stop crapping on critics uh, myself. I, w I would like to give a special shout out to James Ponowozik. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last Ponowazic. name right. I, I, I just know Ponowozik. Thank you, uh, Lisa. Um, audience of one, which was mm -hmm. a very good look at like Trump as kind of cultural phenomenon using some of the he's a yeah. TV critic at The New York Times and he's very, very good at what he does. And he, he used again, uses those tools of criticism to kind of look at the whole Trump thing uh, in an interesting right. way. I mean, critics are better positioned than almost anyone in American life to explain why Donald Trump is successful and appealing. And if you let the sort of visceral horror of his politics and his, you know, his personal conduct and the way he talks about the world overwhelm your ability to explain that, then something is getting lost. I mean, I find Donald Trump completely repulsive, but I also think he's an incredibly talented performer and you know, a lot of what people want out of politics is to be entertained. Um, whether I don't, I wish that were not true, but given that it's a fact on the ground, 
critics have more power to explain this clearly and succinctly. And even if you think that Trump is horrifying and inexplicable, explaining clearly how he works and why he's appealing is one of the keys to defeating him. So you, yeah. you give up political uh, power when you talk about politics in mundane terms, rather than preserving the power that you can have as a critic and a student of culture by using the distinct skills that you have gained in that sphere. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good ending point. Thank you very much for joining me on The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood, Alyssa and Peter. This was fun. Uh, calls back a, a another show. We were trying to figure out how to bring that back. We'll, we'll be... Uh, we we'll will keep be you posted in touch there. Um, uh, until then, uh, please enjoy the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, I am Sunny Bunch. I will be back next week with another episode. Mm-hmm.